Welcome to the EMS Educator Podcast, powered by Prodigy EMS. Join us for relevant, high-quality discussions around the best practices in EMS education. You'll find interviews with experts in EMS, education, simulation, medical direction, leadership, and more. Hello and welcome back to the EMS Educator Podcast. And uh, if you just follow us on Apple Podcasts, you'd realize that we haven't been in your airwaves or in your ears since last year. So happy new year, very belated, I know. I'm your host, one of your hosts, Rob Lawrence. And I just realized before we bring uh, my amazing co-host in and she introduced the guests that uh, between all of us on the on the podcast today, we're pretty much on every podcast, every video going around. In fact, I, I quipped to my, my co-workers this week that this podcast could be the Kardashians of EMS, right? So uh, let's uh, let's bring them in. Let's talk about them. And to do that, uh, welcome back the amazing Hillary Gates. Rob, do you think they're tired of us yet? I'm looking at them on screen and they're already shaking their heads and we're only okay. 30 seconds in. Welcome, everyone. We're really excited to be back. Um, and today we're talking about one of my favorite topics, which is educating the educators. Um, we can't assume that people uh, just in, inherently know how to teach and guide and mentor and give feedback. So that's what we're going to talk about today with uh, three incredible guests. Our guest host, Maya Dorset, and we also have podcaster extraordinaire, educator extraordinaire, Ginger Locke, and we have flight medic veteran and amazing Ashley Liebig, the house builder. So we'll have them introduce themselves first, uh, Maya, Ginger, and Ashley. Uh, my name is Maya Dorset. I'm the medical director at Prodigy EMS um, and have the privilege of being a guest host often on this uh, particular podcast, and I'm by no means an expert on this subject, which is why I'm so excited to have two experts join us talking about preceptor training. And I'm Ginger Locke. I'm an EMS educator in Austin, Texas at Austin Community College and host of the Medic Mindset podcast. Really glad to be here. And uh, Ashley and I recently taught a class, and we made a point to to emphasize that we also are not experts. We've just learned these things um, through lessons hard learned and uh, reading lots of books, talking to other educators. So also not an expert. Uh, my name is Ashley Liebig. I um, am the Division Chief for Clinical Performance and Education in Travis County. Um, and so what that means is we I manage the medical direction for uh, Travis County Starflight, as well as uh, many of the Travis County Emergency Services Districts or Fire Departments. Um, and uh, yes, we are not the experts. That said, I uh, we have all studied under and alongside with many colleagues and peers from around the world in the area of cognitive learning theory, feedback, um, building sense of belonging and leadership, and that's where we're that's where we headed with our class that we developed uh, together for some field training officers in Austin. I've just got to jump in and fanboy here because I consume everything that Ginger produces because it's so thoughtful and amazing. And you guys have to pay attention to uh, Ginger's podcasts. And Ash, if you haven't seen Ash in action, just go and Google Smack, Social Media and Critical Care. And uh, you went on the world tour for a while, Ash, and uh, with, with some amazing presenters presenting just phenomenal topics. Uh, and I, for one, am saddened that uh, that came to an end. Um, so a shameless plug here, uh, we are hosting St. Emlyn's blog and podcast is hosting St. Emlyn's Wild in Coniston uh, in the UK this, year, this summer, uh, June 8th 
no, June 9th and 10th, I believe. But you can check out fainemlinsblog.org for some info and we'd love to see you for our adventure. That's amazing. And if you're listening in the UK, Coniston, of course, is in the Lake District in Cumbria and uh, it's Hill Walking Central. And so uh, I might have to get a ticket out there. If you're listening in the US, it's amazing and it's Hill Walking Central. You've got to go. So uh, follow Ash and follow St. Emlyn's. It's amazing. And uh, sorry, I'm just geeking out on this because you're going to one of my favorite places in the UK. Uh, anyway, Hillary, quick, take it back quickly before I keep geeking over this. It's okay. Um, for those who need to know how to spell St. Emlyn's, it's E-M-L-Y-N because the British are kind of quirky that way. So, okay, it's good. It's not my fault you removed use from every word in your language. Just saying. <laughs> So today, everyone, we are going to talk about the importance of training preceptors. And as Ginger and Ashley mentioned, they recently got to teach this important work in um, Austin Travis County. And we want to kind of just talk as an overview about the importance of this and why it is so important to train our preceptors. So um, Ginger and Ashley, perhaps you can just talk about kind of the genesis of the course um, and what you were hoping to get out of it, as well as um, where you think it's going to go next. Ginger? Sure. I I think really holistically, uh, this particular department was looking for a cultural change. And they realized that if they can um, equip their preceptors, you know, their training officers, command staff was in this training as well, um, with some of these, you know, ideals of a lot of communication things about how to give feedback, um, that they could move that needle a little bit culturally. So that was, that was really the origin and I think they pinged on Ashley and I because these are things I've talked about on the podcast, things I originally learned from Ashley doing pre-conference courses uh, at EMS World, for example. We did an eight-day training on education, and I remember sitting in there as a seven, eight-year educator, you know, and I was hearing things that I had never heard before and really realizing, oh, I've been doing it wrong. Well, I, I, you know, I'm one of the educators sitting in there, supposedly training people and how to teach. And I'm hearing from my colleagues like Ashley teaching content that was uh, a little kind of a gut check for me. So Ashley, when, when you were teaching this course, what were some of the big takeaways um, that you learned? And uh, what do you think really are the things that we should be imparting to our preceptors when we get them trained for the field? So after a series of eight, I think eight courses that we taught in total, um, what we the curriculum was sort of uh, based on things that we thought were important. So we did some cognitive learning theory. We spent a lot of time in feedback. Uh, we spent some time in um, critical appraisal of literature, where to find uh, good information, good resources, learning resources. Um, but we we spent a lot a lot of time in difficult communications and how to deliver and receive feedback and building sort of that culture. Um, and that was was kind of the bulk of of the course. And the feedback globally was awesome. People really enjoyed the opportunity to understand how learners learn and how to really talk to them and set expectations and priorities and then um, continue to develop those and develop that relationship. We tried to establish a course where, we developed a sense of belonging and kind of built a little tribe or a group of people, a collective that people felt like they were a part of, and then encouraged people to 
do that for themselves and in their, um, you know, with their teams. Hillary, can we take a little step back? So one of the things that was talked about, you know, I think both Ginger and Ashley touched on is concepts like culture and belonging. Um, And right, we started this out to talk about educating the educators. And I think one of the things that I really want listeners to think about is why is something like this really important? Because I think a lot of places have either some sort of preceptor training. So if you precept paramedic students, right, there has to be some sort of preceptor training. But I think a lot of what goes into that is something that checks the box for accreditation. Like this is how you sign off on their documentation. These are some of the expectations around the program. But very little of that preceptor training is on how to become an educator. So I was hoping that we could explore a little bit what is the link between creating culture right? The culture that we want in an organization and educating the educators. Like how are those two things like linked together as like a goal and a mechanism to achieve that goal? Uh, One of the things we did early in the day was ask the department or the, the attendees, what do they want their department to look like in 20, 30, 50 years? And that was a really nice, um, exchange of ideas. And then at the end of that, we, you know, talked about how they are the ones empowered or they're in the ones in in that position to create that change because everyone's looking at them as, as educators, as trainers, as captains, they are the ones that are setting the standard for clinical care, for how do we treat, you know, each other. Um, So starting early on with empowering them in that position. I think sometimes identifying to some experiences that have shaped their past. And as an icebreaker, we put forth a series of questions about the best kind of educator that they ever had and their characteristic traits and the worst kind. And if they had ever been teased or what feedback felt like. And we really used a lot of those discussions to make points throughout the day um, when people shared with us, you know, their positive experiences or negative experiences. And then we were able to kind of interlink those with some of the lessons. But I think you make a really great point. And one of my big things is um, the feeling of belonging. And that's part of building that culture. So one of the things I talk about in the class, there's a book by um, Jeffrey Cohen out of Stanford, um, and it's called Belonging. What he talks about is how the feeling, how the feeling of of belonging goes back to, you know, through evolution and Darwin, because when we were alone as people, we were food, right? So unless you're part of a, of a, you know, a group of people, um, you're, you're vulnerable. And so really that doesn't, that, that's still similar. People will do any and all things to be part of something. And so if we build a space that and make people feel welcome, make people feel belong and get away from this sort of eat our young behavior, um, People are going to perform for that. And that's what we want. We want them to be high performers, but they can, they're going to do that much faster when they feel that psychological safety and they feel that sense of belonging that they have a team. Yeah. Cause you know, when I think about this, I think that those are the principles that permeate everything that we do. Right. So when we talk about, I know, big issues like workforce retention or, quality improvement or anything that we want to accomplish as an EMS agency, it's really important that these certain principles of things like psychological safety, right, are like prerequisites for all those things. Um, And I think about this in terms of like, where are our leverage points to change culture? 
So I think very often we try and do, I don't know, service recovery isn't the right word, but it's like this reactionary thing to sort of bad culture. But there's a way, I think preceptor training in the big picture is a way to be proactive about making the culture that you want. It's like at the entry point. So I think about this a lot from initial education and you know, I'm a medical director of initial education program. I think about how do I set the stage for what a relationship with a medical director looks like, right? Like initial education is my leverage point to do that. Everybody needs to go through initial education to become part of the profession. But I think preceptor training, um, very often we think about what we can do around like hiring. But in reality, you learn that I can say whatever I want about giving people the benefit of the doubt and psychological safety is important. But if they don't see that from the people who train them in the field, who are there for, you know, bringing them into your organization, everything you say just seems false (laughs) and nobody's going to believe it. And anything you try and create is like not persistent. And so like, and I'm always thinking like, how do you create? Like what I want to know from you is like, One, I think that's why it's so important that it's done right. Um, And how do you create sort of the content of that? Because I think so much of the stuff like preceptor training is like teaching them operational components and like that stuff. But that's how do you go beyond that and how you educate your like intermediary leaders who actually interact with all the, the crews? I think you're on to something with this idea that most preceptor training is how do you fill out the form? You know, how, how, what is the rubric? You know, how do you score people? And in fact, we did a pre-survey for all attendees. They were sent just very simple, couple of questions. And one of those questions was, and, and the idea was just to get them in setting their intentions and thinking about what the day might be like and getting them engaged. And one of the questions was, what do you expect that you're going to learn? Because we didn't really send an itinerary. What do you expect that you're going to learn? And then what do you hope you're going to learn? And we pulled from that to make sure we we're covering the things they hoped they were going to learn. And many of them said, I expect you're going to teach me how to fill out the form. I'm hoping you're going to learn. I'm hoping I'm going to learn how to give, how to navigate these very difficult conversations. What do I do when a learner's crying? What do I do when someone's, you know, not meeting the standard? Really, really hard questions. I actually love that you started with, right, like a learner reflection about what is it that they want to know. And I think you've already found a disconnect between what is taught and what people want to know based on their real experiences. So how did you use that to go over, sort of build the curriculum for this class? Like what did it even include as far as topics? Yeah, so Ashley alluded to it earlier in in terms of lifelong learning. Uh, Dr. Heidi Abraham was there with us and talked about lifelong learning and how to appraise literature. And I would say at least 50% of the day was how to give feedback. And we practiced through scenarios of what would you do uh, with them working in groups. And then Ashley did a amazing job with a very um, learner-friendly. It was, it, it was neat because she was using cognitive theory to teach learning theory. So we, we taught them about, you know, how do learners learn? And um, it kind of embodied that. It was, it was meta during it. Um, but we talked about growth mindset. And Ashley, you know, yeah, we spent some the content in that. Yeah. 
Yeah, we spent some time in um, cognitive learning theory, and then we spent some time also in some practices that assist learners with learning. So, um, you know, we we got very basic and talked about um, had actually gave the class workshop um, individual, you know, group sessions, some things that we thought were really important for them to understand. So um, Maslow hierarchy of needs, right? So they they put together a little presentation on, they Googled it, they spent some time on it and why that's important to learning theory. We talked about some concepts like spaced repetition and how that helps their learners, some um, uh, some other theories and education and teaching. Um, we, we also talked about um, in totality, cognitive learning theory and how our brain processes um, and dual codes information. So through auditory and visual stimuli and then creates this sort of schema um, and how how that's important to our teaching because if we're giving something that's very heavy on the um, this difficult content and then we're also giving them difficult uh, a difficult scenario in which to learn that content and their cup is kind of full in what their capacity their learning capacity is and so what we've tried to teach is in something as complicated as simulation that should not be the first time people are learning skills right simulation should be reserved for for later because simulation is multifactorial and extremely complex. And so we want to just kind of hone and, and uh, del- practice skills there. Whereas if we're going to teach how to start an IV for the first time, we want to do it in a really controlled environment with um, really easy kind of learning points um, and without a lot of distraction. And so we talked about those kinds of areas where it's really difficult, particularly on scene and EMS to teach concepts. So in a really hyper dynamic scene, when you're precepting someone, that might not be the time to try and teach someone how to read a 12 lead for the very first time. Now, is it the appropriate time to teach them how to read it? Tw- I mean, to, uh, you know, a look at a 12 lead after they've, you know, looked at 100 of them with you in station uh, before, then yes. But to uh, so really kind of to try and match understanding cognitive theory, not to just say, oh, yeah, I learned about this learning theory. Um, but also to say, okay, I've learned about this learning theory and I really know how now to apply it to our practice and why it's important. So don't forget, you can follow us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, Amazon Music, and I'm sure many, many more. And before we go any further, we're just going to take a second to join our 501c3 charity and sponsor, EMS Gives Life. Hello, I'm Christine Fichter, the Executive Director of EMS Gives Life. At EMS Gives Life, our mission is simple. We educate the EMS first responder community on how to become a living organ or bone marrow donor and then provide support if you choose to give this gift of life. Our organization was inspired by pro-EMS paramedic Will Lindbergh's selfless decision to anonymously donate a portion of his liver saving the life of a three-year-old boy. We know our community is full of heroes who perform life-saving acts every day. It is this heroism and selflessness that we're counting on. More than 6,000 people die each year on the transplant waiting list. Deceased donors are simply not enough. Living organ donors are desperately needed, and our community is up for the challenge. Would you consider being a living donor if you had the support you needed and the assurance that you would go to the top of the list if you ever needed a transplant in the future? Through our partnerships, we can make those promises. If you're curious about living organ or bone marrow donation, let's talk. And if you're already a living donor, we'd love to hear your story. You can find us at emsgiveslife.org. Thank you.
If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to rate and review us on the platform that you're listening to us on. Coming back, uh, we've got Hillary with us, obviously, Maya, our guest host, and Ginger and Ashley. But uh, Maya, I think you were about to jump in with a, with a point before I uh, rudely interrupted us with the ad break. I think it's worth just thinking about how different what the content that was just described is from, I think, a typical field training officer program, right? So very often... I don't know what everybody's field training officer program looks like, but when I think about what preceptor training, it's not sort of cognitive learning theory, but I think that when we're teaching people how to educate others and how to be successful and how to people make people feel sort of safe and belonged as par- and valued as part of the organization, teaching people how to do these things sort of really defines success of what people learn, which is the point of a field training officer program, right? And then you can talk about all the operational stuff too, um, but that's sort of the, the edges and the, and the details and the specific stuff. Um, but nobody gets that education often in the process of becoming a field training officer unless you very deliberately put it in. Yeah, I think lots of credit to this department that was willing to give Ashley and I just free reign. They literally said, this is your time block. Do what you think is is best. And something we heard from the students in the class is they loved it that we were outsiders. They loved it that we weren't standing there wearing brass in part of their department, that we were people with just pure intentions of wanting to share what we know. There was... it. it I was surprised that they loved the outsiders part too, because I was prepared for them to say, we don't really know, you know, how it is. Uh, But the opposite was true. There's something to that. I I have to note that because that happened to me recently in my own continuing education in my department. Um, I'm not trying to say that our own people can't teach us, but when you bring in an outsider, especially a subject matter expert, there's something very refreshing. It also shows the, uh, employees that their department cares about finding the best people to bring in. And I remember feeling after that, and uh, among all of my peers, we we commented on, this is amazing. I'm so excited that they spent money and time on bringing this expert in to teach us. So um, I, I think that's worth noting as a as a program. I think that's also, the, to, be, to be fair, that's exactly when we did Refresh a few years ago. And we had those 30 classes. And, you know, the reaction we got was, you know, you don't need me, instructor, reading the slides at you when you can have salad by Dr. Ducanto talking to you directly himself. And so there is that, uh, the value in doing that, whether it's actually live or indeed, uh, you know, remotely. What I'm wondering too is, my my sense is just from the very way that you've started the preceptor training discussion as they had a reflection on their own experiences. Um do you think it made people freer to talk about and reflect about their own experiences, positive and negative within an organization? And how did you navigate that? So as part of um, the, the course, we introduce the beginning of the day and talk about psychological safety. And this is something I do regularly whenever I go do simulation education um, within my departments and talk about the importance of um, the conversations that ha- happen here, stay here. We, we start with this basic premise of we're all here, we want to do a good job, we want to be successful, successful in our jobs, and that um, we need to, you know, there is some degree of kind of teasing within EMS, um, and, but we want to respect one another's opinions. I also often do something or say something off the cuff or silly or self-deprecating or whatever to create intentionally, to create um, a space of vulnerability 
so that they know I'm capable of being silly and fun and or, you know, um, that I don't take myself very seriously. And we're very intentional about uh, how we how we talk about ourselves, where we position ourselves in the classroom. And so I think that um, we create this really safe space for people to be able to share um, their perspectives and they the feed the feedback is a really, really engaged class. And we often wish that we had more time because people wanted to engage and, and have those conversations with us. Students, students love hearing about you messing up. And the reason that they love hearing that is exactly why Ashley uh, uh, purposely creates the space, which is that we're human too. And we're not on high. We're not standing there being the sage on the stage that you can't question or, um, or uh, interrogate. And so I remember being very surprised by how many of my students said that they remembered when I would tell them stories about messing up. Um, and those stories are extremely valuable. And if you think of preceptorship and being in the field and taking care of a new student, um, messing up is is happening uh, daily um, by both of you, but um, but certainly by the new person. And it's one of the scariest things for them, knowing that they're going to mess up and um, not wanting to look like a fool. That's sort of the most, uh, their biggest goal is I want to go do this um, this ride along or um, be with a preceptor and not look like a fool. So anytime you can help them feel safe is, um, is, is terrific. There was actually a study recently published by Adam Grant, um, who I think people know from the, the books that he publishes on sort of organizational culture and cognition, but he also does a bunch of research and he published a study that demonstrated that one of the most effective ways to create psychological safety is for the leader to demonstrate vulnerability. So, right. It's, I think it's something that feels very true to our experience, but there's also data that demonstrates that that is a really effective way to do that. But I think from the perspective of this class is very often say it's like useful to have experts come in, but we've all been in classrooms where the experts um, are sort of more into being experts than demonstrating the practice. And I think particularly when we think about who do you bring in to provide education to educators to improve your culture, you have to be selective about people who are not putting themselves on sort of the high horse, but are willing to sort of demonstrate the very principles that you want everybody in the room to demonstrate. Because to go to Ginger's point, it's very meta, right? Like, I think you can say that this works and creates this culture and you need to do these things. Um, but then people can sort of find the truth in it by experiencing what is it like to receive from education from somebody who is demonstrating those very principles. And so it's expertise and so far as you actually demonstrate that as a principle and you use those principles in the in the classroom rather than like me, it'll, this will never work if I'm lecturing to you about cognitive psychology only and not using the techniques within the in the classroom. It doesn't have the same effect, I don't think. And when we wrote the curriculum for this course, which we evolved over the time based on feedback that people gave to us from the courses, so we changed it based on the feedback that they were providing and we Ginger would tell them at the beginning that we're interested. We really want to know your feedback. We're going to ask you at the end and, and we want you to, to provide that so that we can, we can continue to evolve what this looks like. And we've taken, we took a lot of that feedback and, and instituted it. But when we wrote the curriculum, we did just that. We included in every, in every section of the curriculum, sort of the intentions, the goals, the objectives, how it reflected on the various learning theories, um, how it would demonstrate that. And it was extremely, extremely intentional 
in that way so that they they may not even have been aware all the time. Um, but we were were very consciously aware of trying to be all of the things that we were trying to teach them to be. So let's get into some of the actual um, activities. Can you guys describe for us the activity where you taught your <clears throat> students how to do these courageous conversations? Um, was there a role playing involved or what do you what do you tell these preceptors so that they feel more comfortable once it actually happens? So there was a bit of um, just talking about the principles of feedback, you know, kind of lecture style. But one of the things I did in that lecture was was talk about, um, you know, different models for giving feedback. And so I would I gave two or three kind of models of, you know, known ways of kind of prescri prescribing these uh, procedures of giving feedback. And then Ashley would chime in with another model. So it was kind of that humility of we're, we're both kind of bringing our ideas. And one of the models that I think the listeners will be familiar with is this idea of at the end of a call, just asking your learner, how did that go? What went well? What didn't go well? And most people related to that because they've either had it done to them or they've done it. And we talked about the pros and cons, that it wasn't intrinsically you know, a good method or a bad method. It just it needs the right timing or the right learner or um, you know, how do you use it as a diagnostic process when you have time? Um, so we, we presented these different models, that being one example, and talked about pros and cons. And then we gave them scenarios to hash out in small groups of what would you do. And then we, we didn't, very often we didn't put them on the spot to have that conversation. I think that's really hard. The classroom sizes were usually 20 to 30 people. Um, and so that's, that's a that's a tall that's a big ask of an attendee to do that but occasionally Ashley and I would model that what it could look like between each other giving each other feedback I think the most important takeaway for your listeners from the feedback uh, modules that we taught again it you know we spent several hours in just feedback alone because it's so critically important to that relationship but the very one of the most fundamental thing is that we ginger at, made everyone stand and take an oath not to ever deliver feedback in the form of the uh, SHIT sandwich. We want people to get away from delivering that as a model of feedback because it's, it's for a variety of reasons and it's not good for anyone. They know they anticipate what's coming next when you say something kind to them um, and uh, and the message is really lost. So we, we want people to get away from that. And I think probably for your learners, if they're interested in feedback, they can come check in with us or take a class. We can send them plenty of resources, but uh, we, we don't want people delivering the positive, negative, positive, because it's really, uh, it's, it's an old form that was at one point in time taught, but it's just no good because it postures people in a way that, that's negative. So, I do want to take the opportunity because I think nobody's taught me more about feedback than Ginger Locke. And she's literally changed the way I deliver feedback and the way I act. And part of it came from co-teaching with Ginger when I, she, I first heard her talk, which is recorded as a medic mindset podcast. So I think we can provide a link to that in the, in the show notes, but I don't know if you talked about it, but I assume you did. Um, Cause to me, the biggest lessons that I learned when listening to Ginger talk about this was two things. The first was giving somebody feedback means you value them. And I think this is something that I did subconsciously. 
Um, but now I say it very consciously and I say it to my students. Like when I take, when I'm spending time giving you feedback, um, it's because you matter to me and the care you give patients matters to me a lot. And I think as people get put in the position of what it's like to give feedback, especially feedback that can be some perceived as, you know, critical, um, I think it's really important that making that sort of subconscious intent really conscious, right? Where I tell them, if I'm doing this, like the next time this happens, it means because I care about you and I believe that you can do better. And if I don't believe you can do better, then I'm not taking the time to do this. And then the second one, I don't, Ginger, I don't know if you remember this. You probably remember this as you talk about when you give feedback that is negative, that you hold the person really close. And I think that was a transform because I'm somebody who always felt like awkward. Like I always want to be like warm and positive and fuzzy. And, and I think especially, right, because you want to be somebody that somebody likes getting feedback from. Um, and I think one of the ways that I shied, one of the reasons I felt so uncomfortable giving negative feedback is because I worried about what would happen to the relationship afterwards. And am I going to somehow break trust? And that piece of advice from Ginger is something that allowed me to transform it, that those moments where I've given really negative feedback are can actually be one of the most positive and combined with that good intent, positive impacts on the relationship, because that's where I can prove that I can give negative feedback and I still love you to death, right? Like, And you're still mine, um, even if something bad happens. And so I would say like, I learned those two things and it's completely transformed the way I do things. And I think probably the most positive way. I love that you have said that because one of the things that we talked about in the class is exactly what you're saying uh, without saying it. And it's a, it's a, there's a book called Radical Candor by Kim Scott. And Radical Candor is about caring personally and challenging directly. So in my mind, this is how I parent. Um, and so it's also how I lead. So I love you a lot. I care deeply about your success, about you as an individual and about, you know, your future here. But I will also respect you enough to challenge you directly when it when the time is right. That said, I there's always a kind of that three to one. I'm always trying to give positive feedback any opportunity I get, just positive feedback alone with no with no follow on, right? But, but so that when I do challenge you directly on, you know, you make a mistake, you screw up, I'm going to let you know. But you know and live in that space where I care greatly for your success. Whether I like you as an individual or not is not important. But I do, um, I, I do care personally about your success in the organization or your success moving forward. And so as long as people know that, the challenging directly thing gets really easy. And I agree with Ginger 100% that that's, that relationship is really, really key to that feedback. If someone knows that you care about their success and you have the best intention, um, that that challenge is fantastic. So they respect it. So in real life, though, that's the delivery. What is what is the reception like? How is it received when you when you execute this uh, this methodology? It is well received so long as you've built the relationship prior to direct feedback, and that is the secret kind of key of building that psychological safety in advance. So the relationship can tolerate very direct, sometimes negative feedback. And another way to build up that relationship is to ask for upward feedback from your learner. And that's, uh, Hillary, earlier you were asking about tangible takeaways. That's something 
a listener can do today when you know they go teach, ask for feedback about their teaching or their clinical care and do that publicly because it demonstrates just really early or really quickly this is the culture that in which we're all existing, where we're all seeking feedback. And don't get defensive. Right. So I ask for it and then also yeah. receive it well. Yeah, right. Because like I think one of the ways that you demonstrate things is that you receive feedback well um, and you take a moment to sort of think about what is valuable and what somebody said and you're not like automatically defending against defending your your practice. So one of the things I've learned uh, in my years as an educator that's been extremely helpful is really trying to always keep in mind that learners want to learn. They are desirous of improvement and that they are there because they care about what they're doing. And sometimes when we get jaded or um, salty, we forget that. Um, but in, in the various places where I've um, been able to be a teacher, including in the English classroom, when, when you think about getting feedback from someone that are that is not helpful or that's um, like giving platitudes rather than actual feedback that will help them. Um, imagine, you know, when you, you'd get a, an essay that you worked really hard on um, and you'd get it back and there would be comments that said things like, good or, um, you know, uh, well-written or something like that. Those are very vague. They're very general. Um, we want to hear how to be better. And yes, we can be good and we can write well, but we also probably need to improve in places. And so I believe that the, the ability to actually have that established relationship so that you can take the feedback and give the feedback that is tr the truth is really the most, um, I would say, dives down into the deepest parts of our souls where we want to become uh, better humans and better EMS clinicians. No, I was just going to say one of the things that Ginger said that um, is during our course and told our students, which I think is really important to, to exactly what you were just saying, Hillary, is that once you have given a student feedback, then they desire to show you that they can do it right the next time. That it's that's really important to them, um, and so providing them that opportunity that to show you and prove to you that they can do it correctly this next time, and not letting that linger is is really key. I, and that was a great takeaway and learning point for me as well. Maya, do you want to talk about the medical director course? Sure. Um, so I teach some of this in the medical director's course because I got ta tasked with educator pearls for the medical director, which is like, I don't know how you take education and you make it into pearls. But one of the sections was specifically about feedback. Um, and I think about it like a savings account that there needs to be a lot of positive, right? Like I can't withdraw until there's a, a bank of positive. And so I think the other big take home is you have to be able to have that bank of positive. So you have to find specific positive things to say, as well as like the reinforcement. What I want to bring sort of the big picture back to, though, is like we started out talking about how preceptor training is important for the culture you want to create. Um, and so I, I was like hoping to explore, right? You talked about words like belonging. So I read a lot of Brene Brown. I don't know if you guys do. I'm like a huge Brene Brown fan, right? And she has this component where she's talking about the difference between belonging and fitting in. And what I'm hoping to hear is like sort of your perspective about 
you know, we can talk about the definitions of those things, but how does training your preceptors and things like feedback help you get towards creating a sense of belonging within your organization or anything else that you teach as part of this course? So this is a little bit of a left turn, but, you know, I talked about all these different models and one of the main models of feedback is called advocacy inquiry. So it's basically getting really curious about someone's actions and just most feedback should start with a question. And I find myself doing that a lot when someone asks me a question. It's like, I want to know more. Um, so I'm, I'm doing that here, which is um, tell me more about the difference between fitting in versus uh, belong belonging. I think obviously fitting in sounds kind of negative and belonging is positive. So I think of it, um, and I don't remember the exact definitions from the book, but fitting in is I conf- I come in and I change myself to be part of your culture, right? Like to fit in there. And belonging is the organization wanting me to be a part of it and like the ability to contribute. With this training, it was very much a feeling or a vibe of we're building this together. And what do you guys want it to look like? You know, that was one of the first questions that, that gets asked. Um, so... They were. I really appreciated their transparency. The the chiefs, the commanders that were in the room talking about we have a goal of shaping culture here, and then what do you guys want it to look like? That would be the essence of belonging. I think building it together. Yeah, and I think about in terms of things like giving good feedback, right? Like if we can't give each other negative feedback and hash things out honestly, like if we can't have psychological safety, then we can't have belonging. Because then it's like you either fit in with like the way shit's done here or you are not part rather than you're a part of contributing to like the way that we do things. Um, And so I think demonstrating how leadership asks for feedback back and how that makes things better. I do think it's like all these sort of like I think culture we always talk about we train the leaders, but culture is sort of convincing everybody else, right? That this is the, that not only that the leaders really believe in this culture and they're going to sort of follow, they're going to follow through in it. And the culture is fundamentally like that your input, your input matters. I think the one thing that we haven't touched on is how does an EMS organization operationalize preceptor training, right? Like where do we fit it in? Um, And I think that there's a lot of lessons learned about what should be taught within preceptor training. Do you have any sort of takeaways about how do you operationalize that? And one of the things I want to explore is, right, is this something that happens just when somebody becomes a preceptor? Do you have plans to doing continuing education for preceptors? Is that the same curriculum? Is that a different curriculum? Sort of thinking about, because I want to convince everybody that we should all have this for everyone, right? And this is I try and do this for at least like our lab educators within our program. I'm slowly making headway in other things, but I'm far from where I would like to be. So what would, what do you think about operationalizing it? Like what are your takeaways and advice? I think the first thing to assume is that every single field educator has zero education on how to teach and that they are teaching the way they were taught in the way that we parent the way we were parented. So start there. Assume that they've not learned about learning theory and the initial education, I think, should include a lot of that, of how do people learn um, and debunking some of the 
misunderstandings about learning styles and all of these things um, and assume they have no initial ed. So in our paramedic program, we're certainly not teaching these future preceptors and every single one of them will probably be a student preceptor at some point yet there's nothing in the curriculum to teach them how to do that we teach them on research and operations and all these other parts of the job but we don't teach them how to teach so um, start with the assumption that they know very little all they know is their experience and so they will probably duplicate that experience good or bad that's just an interesting concept, I think, applied across the, the, the range of any EMS agency. I spend a lot of time talking about how we don't train our supervisors. We just go, you're a great paramedic. Bang, you're now a supervisor. I guess the same can be applied here. I think that it's not just EMS. It's, it's in all the medicine, right? We ask our physicians to teach residents. We ask our nurses to precept future nurses. We And, and, and never having any concept of this, we just say, oh, you're, you're good at this thing, so you must be good at teaching it, too, is a huge assumption that's dangerous, I think. Um, some people don't have any desire to teach, and that makes it even more difficult. Or if they do have a desire, don't know where to go for resources. And again, if we're just teaching the way we've learned, we've watched culturally within those three that I just mentioned be tremendously dangerous to new learners. Um, that eat your young and the pimping that physicians do and all those kinds of things is, is can be humiliating and can be really, really difficult on, on learners and their experience, not creating a space of psychological safety at all. So I think that's a question that it's a little bit egotistical to say educators go to school to learn to be educators, but the rest of us should just be able to be an educator on top of what we're doing without any sort of training whatsoever. So it's almost, it is, it's not almost, it's rude <laughs> to assume that. So I think the bigger message is teach me how to teach before I go out and hurt someone with my knowledge or lack of knowledge. That's my thought. I think with those uh, incredibly wise words, everybody, let's uh, wrap up here. I've been f fascinated by this discussion. And of course, when I look at, when I edit the podcasts, as I, as I do all of our podcasts, I look at the sound waves right in the tracks. And if you get the point where the hosts are talking more than the guests, then you're probably wasting your time because there's not, there's no education and knowledge being imparted. This particular podcast, you guys have been remarkable in delivering us amazing content. And Hillary and I haven't done a lot of talking, which is good because we want to hear from you. Um, as that layperson listening in, though, you know, if you are, what, what are, I've been writing furious notes here. And of course, uh, you know, the first principles, if you are that new uh, preceptor, right? Here, here's, here's my checklist, right? So it's, you know, the preceptor. So it's really, it's teaching, learning, knowledge, confidence, comfort. And then coaching, so you're developing your your person. So that's what I took away from you, and I hope uh, others will take away a ton. Now then, let's do the end piece where I ask you all, how can we follow you and get in touch with you? So, Ash, how can we do that? Um, gosh, I'm so bad on the socials these days, but everywhere I'm Ashley Liebig, A-S-H-L-E-Y-L-I-E-B-I-G, um, on Twitter, on Instagram, um, and then same as Gmail, AshleyLiebig at gmail.com. And also soon to appear in the British Lake District as yes. well. Ginger? Uh, I would just send people to medicmindset.com. That'll be a good launching place to get in touch with me. My email address will be there, ginger at medicmindset.com. Great. And uh, we don't need to ask this question, but we will. Maya? I'm boring. I'm just at Maya Dorset on Twitter. <laughs> 
You, Doctor, are anything far from boring. And uh, finally, Hillary, take us home. You know, um, the thing that Ashley just said here about it's rude to assume uh, that people know things that they really don't know. Um, I love that because it puts the onus on us and we need to, um, as uh, leaders and educators, we need to be aware of what people know and we need to do needs assessments and we need to activate prior knowledge and we need to understand the needs of our of our folks. So um, the last thing I want to say is just to remember what it was like to be a brand new EMS clinician. And don't forget how scary it was and how little you knew and what it was like to go to a firehouse or a clinical site and be amongst lots of people who knew more than you and who didn't know your name necessarily and who were tasked with taking care of you while also taking care of patients. Um, we need to make that a safe space for our students and for our interns, and we also need to empower them with um, the expectations that the program has and also the expectation that they speak up and advocate for themselves because that's one of the hardest things to do when you're a new learner. Thank you for those uh, words, Hillary. This has been the EMS Educator Podcast with uh, myself, uh, Hillary Gates, our guest host or ghost, if you combine the two together, Dr. Maya Dorset, uh, Ginger Lock, and Ashley Liebig. Uh, we're looking forward to seeing you again soon, but for the moment, uh, take care, everybody, and bye for now. <laughs>